Good morning, Strong Tower. Uh, what a, uh, I should be saying all that about your pastor and his lovely wife, Doreen. I bring you greetings from the people in the Passion of Mosaic Church in Little Rock, Arkansas, a multi-ethnic, economically diverse church in the urban center of the city. And when I think about Chris and Doreen, I think about Chris from, Transforma- uh, from the uh, Transformation Crusade, right, uh, all the way to the starting of uh, Strong Tower, the fuller story, Dorina's writings. I, I wrote down a few words. When I think about Chris and Dorina, uh, these are the words instantly come to my integrity, um, faithfulness, uh, patience, persistence, uh, pioneering in this field. You know, this is a 100-year movement right now, and I'll share more about that in a moment. And your church, this church, pioneered, is one of the very few churches that can claim to be a pioneering church and there's led, of course, by Chris and Darina. You know, if this was about football and a coaching tree, as Chris alluded, we come from the same coaching tree. Uh, Pastor Gerald is here from that tree as well. So in 1984, uh, Pastor Ken Hutchison, who passed about 10 years ago from cancer, used to play in the NFL. He founded Antioch Bible Church in Seattle or Kirkland, Washington. It was one of the very first Uh, intentionally multi-ethnic churches in all of America and the Western world. Uh, It was in 1995, as you know, that Chris then, being a mentor, a a disciple, if you will, of Ken, started this church. And you've had members like Sherm Smith, who's an old friend of mine. And of course, Pastor Gerald, as I referred to, came from Antioch here. So 84 Antioch, 95 Strong Tower through Chris and Zarina. And then uh, six years after that, 2001, I too mentored, discipled by Pastor Ken at Antioch, started Mosaic in Little Rock, Arkansas. You know, my story's a bit different. Uh, I had been for 18 years a student ministries pastor, and the final eight of those uh, brought me to Little Rock to an amazing church. Uh, When I got there in 1993, it was 2,000 strong. Eight years later, it was 5,000 people. My youth group, 7th through 12th grade, went from 150 to 600 students, Uh, I ended up being in the top 2% of paid youth pastors in America. The church allowed me to build a student ministries facility in 1997-98. We paid $3.5 million cash in that moment, uh, 1998, to build it. I had three full-court gyms. I had a 32-foot climbing wall, uh, a coffee shop, an amazing facility. I ended up with 500 kids in small groups and nine full-time staff working for me just to service 7th through 12th grade students. In other words, I was living the dream until one day I looked around this otherwise amazing church and realized that the only people of color were janitors. And that began to bother me in 1997. I didn't know why in the moment that bothered me, But something didn't sit well. And that took me to the Word of God in 1985, uh, 87. I earned a master's degree in what's called exegetical theology, the ability through the original language to go into the Bible and pull out meaning from the text. And so I threw out the notes that I'd been taught in seminary about planting, growing, and developing churches. We had been taught that the way to plant, grow, and develop churches was to target a single people group, give them everything they want, and that's how you grow a big church. Uh, We had been taught that the New Testament church was uh, separated along the lines of color, class, and culture, particularly Jewish believers went to Jewish churches, and Gentile believers went to Gentile churches. Was all of that, in fact, true? So over the next few years in my spare time, I 
uh, open the Word of God throughout that. Today they call it deconstruction. I don't think so much about deconstructing anything. I think it's about constructing something. And I love that about Chris and Darina. They didn't go out to deconstruct things, even in the fuller story, but to build the future and to construct the future. And that's what the Bible is. So I looked into the New Testament and, uh, and came to realize that every church in the New Testament outside of Jerusalem was what we would call today a multi-ethnic or multi-racial church. That church was envisioned by Jesus on the night before he died when he prayed that if we would be one, the world would know God's love and believe. It was described in action at a place called Antioch. In other words, the church at Jerusalem in Acts 2 is only a starting point. It's not the stopping point for the trajectory of the church. We find the biblical model at Antioch, Acts chapter 11, where believers were first called Christians in the multi-ethnic environment. The first staff page on a website in the... Entire world, Acts 13, 1. Two of the leaders of this multi-ethnic church were from Africa, one from the Middle East, one from Asia Minor, and one from the Mediterranean. And all of that instructing us to empower diverse leaders to plant, grow, and develop churches for all people and not just some people on earth as it is in heaven. In fact, that's the question I began to ask myself in the late 90s. Uh, Christ, I'd been raised Catholic, Jesuit Catholic. I knew very well the Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. And so, again, in the late 90s, I began to scratch my head and ask myself the question, if the kingdom of heaven is not segregated, then why on earth is the church? If the kingdom of heaven is not segregated, why on earth is the church, Right? Uh, at that time, I didn't know it, but at the turn of the century, only 7.5% of all churches in America, uh, I should had, or let me say it like this, 92.5% of all churches in America failed to have at least 20% diversity in their attending membership uh, at that time. And only 4% of the very few multi-ethnic churches that existed that met that measure were led by people of color. I'm thankful to report over 20 years later, today, 23% of churches in the United States have at least 20% diversity in their attending membership. More than 17% now are led by people of color. And this is the trajectory of the entire 21st century. I said that earlier, this is a 100-year movement. Have you ever thought about the fact that entire epochs of church history in time are summed up in a word, in one word? Uh, if I said to you, what's the single greatest uh, thing that happened, the Holy Spirit's movement of God upon the earth, upon the church, in the third or fourth century, you might say Constantine, the conversion of the Roman Emperor Constantine. One word, one man's name, sums up an entire 100 years of the work of God in the church and on earth uh, through the conversion of Constantine. If I said the 16th century, you might say Reformation. 100 years in time gets summarized in an entire word. What will they say if God was to tarry two or three or 400 years down the road as they look back on the 21st century? What will be said about the work of the Holy Spirit on earth and through his church in that time? Well, I don't know what the word is, but maybe multiracial, multiethnic, but it has to do with the integration of the church on earth for the sake of the gospel. The fact is an increasingly diverse and painfully polarized society already no longer finds credible our message of God's love for all people because it's preached from segregated pulpits and pews. And that message is no longer believable, and God ain't going to let that happen. You know what I'm saying? So you either get on the bus or you get left behind because in this century, as I just shared it, some of the statistics, the trajectory of the entire Bible and even of this century, 
bends towards multi-ethnicity. And Strong Tower, since 1995, before anyone was even thinking about it, Chris and Darina were doing it, you all. And I'm so honored to stand here in their shoes today and in this pulpit and in this place that is already historic and will be certainly so down the road. Now, with all that in mind, uh, and I should say this, uh, just if I didn't, uh, I, I mentioned that uh, today, 17% of multi-ethnic churches led by people of color, 23% uh, of churches are now integrated uh, and moving towards that. And with all that in mind, that what God is doing is not so much using uh, the church to heal racial tensions and problems in our society, but as uh, Chris Rice said in 1999 in the book, More Than Equals, I believe it is more true that God is using race to heal the church. God is using race to heal the church, and you're a part of that. Well, all that's to say a little bit of background and how I'm here uh, this morning and the GDK series, and... Um, but I want to turn away from that messaging of the multi-ethnic church to talk about something a bit more um, concerning, relevant, timely for us this morning. And I want you to open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Well, we will head in just a moment. You know, I so appreciated the worship. You come to Franklin, Nashville, whatever, I know you're going to get some good music and good worship. And we certainly had it this morning. And I was struck by the last song in particular uh, of God being a good father. That speaks to me because I was born out of wedlock, 1961, at a time in American history where only 6% of children were born out of wedlock and without fathers. So I grew up in a single parent home without a father. Today I'm the father of four adult children and five grandchildren. And with that in mind, when we come to the book of Timothy, I am particularly sensitive to Paul's relationship with Timothy. Uh, in fact, it's much more than a, a mentor-protege relationship, much more than a teacher to a student. In fact, over five, at least five times in the New Testament, Paul refers to Timothy as his son, at least five times. And, and so therefore, it's much more than that teacher-student relationship. And in the entire letter, both in 1 Timothy and in 2 Timothy, then Paul, much like a father, is passing on wisdom for living to his son, Timothy. Take a look at this slide. For example, in Philippians chapter 2, uh, verses 22, Paul says to Timothy, I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare, for everyone else looks out for their own interests, not, of those, and not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy had proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served me uh, served with me in the work of the gospel. One of the five references that Paul makes to Timothy as if a son. And isn't that what every good father, every good mother uh, in that regard as well wants for their children? To pass down wisdom. To pass down instruction as we cheered and celebrated these little ones going off. It's our desires as fathers and mothers and uncles and aunties to pass on wisdom. To see them live a good life, a purposeful life, one filled with meaning and mostly with Jesus Christ. And so it's in that vein that Paul is writing to Timothy. And when you think about passing down wisdom, we should recognize that wisdom is much more than mere knowledge or information that you know in your head, right? It's your experience with life. Wisdom is your ability or an acquired capacity to translate or apply knowledge and experience into sound judgment for daily living. 
Much more than information, it's the capacity to translate experience and knowledge into effective daily living. Living that helps you avoid and outlive the ways of the world, whereby to find peace and prosperity, purpose and meaning. By the way, in the book of Proverbs, right, this book, Proverbs, is considered in the Old Testament to be what's called wisdom literature, and particularly in chapters 1 through 9, uh, we see a father and a mother passing down wisdom and instruction to their son. Over and over again, in fact, in that book, and particularly in these chapters 1 through 9, you read phrases like, my son, keep my teaching, bind my words around your neck, for they will give you life. For example, in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, uh, they say, my son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commandments in your heart. Why? For they will prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity. You know, the opposite of wisdom then is what? Foolishness. The opposite of wisdom is foolishness. And the opposite of the ways of the world uh, that is death are the ways of God that lead to life. And we should keep these opposites in mind as we look at 2 Timothy 3 this morning, because over and over again, the Bible contrasts wisdom with foolishness, the ways of God with the ways of death. You know, uh, I am not a particularly handy person, handyman, but uh, a couple of years ago, my wife bought a, uh, a grill, a gas grill, you know, maybe think I could barbecue, whatever. That thing has sat in my garage for two years because I was afraid to open the box. But finally, I worked up the nerve because I knew it was going to be all these parts and different things. Worked up the nerve this past Father's Day. And, uh, and, and so I broke it out and I put it together and, you know, we were able to grill on it. And I shouldn't have been afraid. It was pretty easy. Why? Because it came with an instruction manual. It came with a step-by-step -step instruction manual on how to put this thing together. And being nervous as I was, I followed it to a T and it actually ended up uh, not being such a big deal. If you can take a look at that slide again, put that back up, because not only did it give instruction for how to put it together, but how to operate it, and not only positive in a proactive or positive way, here's how you operate, also with many dangers, don't do this, right? Don't do this. You know, every appliance, every computer, every TV, every microwave that we own today comes with what? An instruction manual. It comes with an owner's manual. And who put it together? The people who created or built the appliance. You build a car, you're the best one to know how that thing works. You put together an instruction owner's manual, you pass it on. That's the person who knows, the one who creates that microwave, that computer, that car. And every appliance comes today with an instruction manual. And now, think about it. If, for instance, you received, you bought a computer, and maybe the computer came, it comes with an instruction manual, and you open it up and it says, don't push these three keys in sequence. Because if you push these three keys in sequence, you will completely erase your hard drive. Completely destroy your hard drive, right? Um, we would call the person who did that a fool, right? You wouldn't do that, right? You would read the instructions, say, don't do that. You'd be cautious. You might put some tape over it. But anyone who went against that, we'd say, you're a fool. What are you doing? Like, it says right here, don't push these three buttons. Oh, I know it said it, but I did. You see what I'm saying? We would call that person foolish, right? Because it says right there what not to do, and yet they did it. The fact is God has given us an instruction manual for life. It's an owner's manual, and it came from 
The one who knows life best, the one who created life. And I can assure you that we are much more important than a computer or a microwave or a car or a TV, right? The Bible then is that instruction manual that tells us how to avoid the ways of death and to walk in the ways of life. Why in the world would we not follow it? Why in the world would we push those three buttons in sequence and blow up our whole lives when the Word of God says, don't do that? When the Word of God says, do this and you will live, don't do that and you will die. We would call ourselves foolish for uh, otherwise violating the instruction manual. Now, the fact is, as the worship leader shared this morning, we're all human and we all stumble and fall in many ways. Amen. From time to time, we don't always live up to the ideals of the word of God. But the good news, of course, is that because of God's great love for us, his mercy, his forgiveness, his grace, we can always come back to this and start again. We can always be drawn home and start over because his mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. You know, when I was a kid, we had a game on the schoolyard called tetherball. Perhaps you played that game, right? And there was a pole fixed in the ground. And the ball is attached to the swing, and two little kids, you try to hit it opposite ways, and that ball's just swinging and going back and forth and swinging and swinging all around, right? But at the end of the day, two little kids, and then that ball just comes and just rests because of gravity. It just sits still right at the base of that pole. That's what my wife is like in our house. My wife is just like that tetherball because through the years, my life has swung all around. My kids, my grand, everybody's swinging around, but we always come to rest right with mama, right there. She's fixed in her faith, fixed on the word of God. And she always, we always acquiesce and bend to her way at the end in spite of swinging wildly because she stayed committed to God and committed to us. And that's what the Bible is, right? It's rooted and grounded in love. It's steadfast and faithful. It can be counted on. It's an instruction manual for life. And so with all that as a background, 2 Timothy, Paul is passing on wisdom, instruction for life, words that lead to life, peace, purpose, meaning, prosperity, uh, that are surely to be lived in a world that seems to be falling apart. And if I had a title for this message, that's exactly what I'd call it. How to keep it together in a world falling apart? How do we keep it together in a world falling apart? All right? We're going to think about that this morning. So let's turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and beginning in verses 1 through 5. Paul writes to Timothy, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Now let's stop there just for a moment. Difficult times for who? For Christ followers. Keep that in mind. It will be difficult for Christ's followers to navigate the last days. That is to walk with God, to stay on point, to live with Jesus in those last days. Paul foresees that in the last days then, uh, that is, and, and I should say it this way, the last days he's talking about isn't the end of the world. It's those last days prior to the second coming of Christ. So prior to the second coming of Christ, 2,000 years ago, the apostle Paul prophetically looks forward to those last days and said, in the last days, that is those days prior to the second return of Christ, it's going to be very difficult for Christians to stay firm, committed, rooted, and grounded in the word of God. And we're going to see why in a second. Amazingly, then, 2,000 years ago, he accurately, I would suggest, predicts the very days we're living in today. So he quotes, and he says this, realize this, in the last days, 
uh, will come this, and he, Paul, and he writes that people will be, and as we go through this list, 19 descriptors. There's 19 descriptions the Apostle Paul assigns to people living in the last days, the way they're living, just prior to the return of Christ. He says people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, slanderers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They will hold to a form of godliness although they have denied its power. They'll claim to be Christian or religious but not living in such a way so as to reflect that. 19 ways in which the Apostle Paul describes people living in the last days just prior to the return of Christ. Now, let me ask you a question. That sound like anybody you know? Does that sound like anybody you see or reflect on, somebody that you hear or that you read, maybe people you observe on social media? Does that sound like anybody you listen to or watch on TV or radio, right, on The View? Oh, I shouldn't have said that, but uh, <laughs> think about it. Do you know anybody or perceive anybody to be like that today in more than one way or the other? These are the people today in our world with the microphones and platforms. And this, that is their behavior, as outlined here by Paul, has become normative. It's become normative. Paul says it's going to be difficult then uh, to be different in the last days. It's going to be difficult for Christ's followers in a world where this behavior is normative to live holy lives. What does it mean, holy? Holy doesn't mean I'm perfect. Holy means I'm separate, right? Uh, in the temple, they had the, the, the holy of holies where the items in the holy of holies, they're separate from everything else. In the Catholic Church, there was a, we, had, we had the holy of holies, if you will, where they put the bread that had been consecrated to Christ. It's a separate thing. So it doesn't mean we're perfect. It means we're to be separate, set apart, to be beacons of light and of hope in an otherwise dark and dying world. So Paul is saying that because this behavior becomes normative in the days prior to the return of Christ, it will be difficult for believers to live separate lives, to maintain their truth, which is ultimately God's truth, versus the pervading truths and myths of this day, the narratives of this day. It will be easy for us to become then like these people if we don't hold fast to the wisdom, and the word of God. Is that making sense? You feeling that with me this morning? Now, he goes on to say this, that such people, that is their aims, their words, their agenda, uh, it's going to gain traction among the gullible. Their words, their ways, their truth will gain traction among the gullible. Take a look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 6 through 7. Paul writes this, among them, that is these people living these 19 ways or parts of these 19 ways in the last days, among them are those who slip into households and captivate the gullible. Now, in the, uh, in the New Testament, he says the women, right? 
Remember the cultural context, the men would have been out working, so the women were in the households. Well, that's very different today. So men or wool, that's why I'm extrapolating that principle to call them the gullible. Okay, men and women can be gullible. And he says that these people living in these 19 ways, arrogant, boastful, lovers of money, lovers of self, etc., are going to be able to come in. They will come into your household and they will fool, if you will, the gullible. They'll captivate the gullible. Who are these people then that are coming into our homes and captivating the gullible? Well, he writes, he says, that they are those who are weighed down with sins. The Greek word actually means that. It, it, it means that they are weighed down. In other words, literally from the Greek, it means they have a heap of sin on them. They're bearing a burden of a heap of sin. That's who these people are coming into your homes, coming into the homes of those in the last days uh, that would deceive the gullible. They are people who bear a heap of sin. Number two, it says they are people who are led on by various impulses. Now, in the Greek, the word is lust. Lust. Lust, by the way, is a, a legitimate desire or need that we seek to fulfill in illegitimate ways. Nothing wrong with lust if you're fulfilling it in, in a good way. It's a passion. It's a desire. But lust, the English word for lust, is when those, those otherwise good or natural passions, the desires, when we seek to fulfill them in illegitimate ways, in immoral ways, that becomes lust. And so he's saying that these people are not only... Uh, have a heap of sin on them. But not only that, but they are led by their various lusts, seeking to fulfill legitimate or natural desires in illegitimate ways. What are some of those? Uh, lusting for power. Lusting for position. Lusting for privilege. Not only are they weighed down by sin, led on by their various impulses, their lust for power, position, and privilege. But they are those who are always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now think about that phrase, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Let's think about that for a moment. In the Greek, what that phrase is actually talking about is these are people who are always up to date. They're up to date on the latest news, the latest items. They're apprised of what's going on. But in spite of that, they can't tell you or they don't want to tell you or they're not sure what is really true. But they stay apprised. They're up to date. Think about a TV news anchor, right? I imagine if you're on CNN or Fox or MSNBC or you're, you're on these TV shows, I imagine you've got a bunch of people around you and every day you're probably doing briefings and thinking about the news and you know about Russia and Ukraine and Kiev and presidential politics and the economy and gas prices, and you're probably all surrounded by all kinds of truth. You're up to date. I imagine you have to be up to date to do a good job. And you have people and advisors. I mean, think about a president. He's got a bunch of people around him, and they're advising him on this and that. A prize. These people are up to date, he says here. Not only are they weighed down to sin with a heap of sin on them, they are led by various impulse for power, position, and privilege, but they're always learning, they're staying apprised, but they are never able to come to the knowledge of truth. They're unable or unwilling to declare then for us the precise truth. And the reason I use the word precise is because that's what it says in the Greek. It's not just knowledge or information, but precision truth. Cutting through all the noise, what is the truth? 
these people, he says, that are coming to the homes, captivating the global, they're up to date, they're apprised, but they're unwilling or unable to tell us what is the precise truth. Which then leads you to wonder about what? Agendas. Why are they wanting me to think like this? What do they have to gain for me changing my behavior and following them? To think or to act or to do as they do. What aims are they trying to advance or to promote as normative? Those are the questions that, when I'm thinking about this, those are the ones I ask. Because apprised of the truth, they're never able to tell me what is true. They're unable to do it or they're unwilling to do it. And then I get asked why. And if I don't ask why, then I could very easily fall into the category of the gullible and move further and further away from this truth to the truth of man. He gives an example of people who are like this. So next slide, 2 Timothy 3, verse 8, he says, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also do so as well. And in history of, uh, of Judaism, these are uh, believed to be people that oppose Moses in one way or another. But he says, just like them, and he breaks it down three ways. These men also, and he calls them men coming into the homes again in that kind of culture. Number one, they oppose the truth. The people coming into the homes to captivate the gullible, unable and or unwilling, in spite of being apprised of the facts, are unable to deliver precision truth. They are coming into these homes, and, and why are they doing this, or how are they? Because, number one, they oppose the truth. Now, again, going to the Greek, the, the phrase, when you look at it in Greek, is actually antithesis of truth. Antithesis, right? So they're not just opposed to truth. Their truth is the antithesis of truth. Their truth is the antithesis of truth. That's what the Greek is saying. Not only that, it says, uh, Paul writes, that they have depraved, that is, immoral or corrupt minds. Immoral or corrupt thinking. In the Greek, the term is degenerate. Their minds have degenerated. So much so that they not only oppose truth, they embrace the antithesis of it. And by the way, it's not so much that these people are evil in and of themselves, right? I, you know, when I was a kid, my, my kids be in the car, I'm sure my kids were the only ones to do that. So they'd get in a little bit of argument and one would point the finger at the other and they'd say, you're a liar, you're a liar, right? My kids probably the only ones that have ever said that, right? I always tried to correct that a bit, right? Because there's a difference in, in being a liar, which is almost an ad hominem attack. You're a liar, that's your identity, versus in a moment maybe telling a lie, right? So Paul, I think, is careful here. It's, it's not so much that these people who are unable or unwilling, coming into our homes, etc., captivating the gullible, uh, I'm sure some of them, they might have corrupt, evil heart and motives, right? But many of them themselves have been deceived. That's what he's going on to talk about here. Their minds have been corrupted. Their minds have become degenerate. Again, not so much that they're evil themselves, but their own minds have been corrupted, and thus they are, again, unwilling or unable to declare precise truth. And very simply put, they bought into the lie. They bought into it. They were taught it, they bought into it, and they pass it on. So Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3, 
verse 8, they are therefore to be rejected in regards to our faith. They are to be rejected. Their truth is to be rejected. In other words, their truth is worthless in regards to our faith, our truth, the truth of God's word, and what helps us to live in peace and prosperity and to find purpose and meaning and significance and security in our lives. Their truth is antithetical to that. And he says, therefore, it should be rejected. Now, I want to ask you a question. Does any of this sound like the times we're living in? And as I've thought about this passage and read and studied, I'm like, how in the world, 2,000 years ago, could one guy, of course, it's the Holy Spirit, but I'm just amazed that 2,000 years ago, you could so accurately predict the days, the times, the people surrounding us. And what's the premise again? Wisdom coming down to children like us, right, in this days. Because he says, because all these people, these 19 descriptors, they're going to be around in the times prior to the coming of Christ. We've been 2,000 years since Christ left the earth in bodily form. He says it's going to be very difficult for Christians to navigate those days. Because all of that behavior seems like normative. You see what I'm saying? In other words, there's truth on a tetherball and the whole world's spinning like this. And if we're not careful, we'll start spinning with it. Instead of staying fixed and firm at the base of the pole, rooted and grounded in the word of God and in love. So he says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 9, but be assured, and this is what he's saying to us, so it's difficult, that's the problem. You see what I'm saying? That's the problem. We're living in this, this age, and people are like this and it's normative, but he says with all of that in mind, be assured, Christian, Christ follower, that these folk will not make further progress for their foolishness in time will become obvious to all. They're short-sighted and they're foolish. In the moment, what they espouse sounds like truth. It sounds good, but don't be fooled, Paul writes to Timothy, for their truth is unsustainable. Their truth is not God's truth. And we should be assured that that will not in time make progress. It might in a moment, but there's a revealing coming, a time when that truth will be exposed as not sound truth, so don't get sucked up in it. Now, jumping down just a few scriptures, 2 Timothy 3.13, because Paul goes, he, he, he's still talking about this, but he has a few verses in there, we'll get back to them. But 2 Timothy 3.13, he says, yes, in the last days, evil people and imposters, that is, people are opposing and presenting themselves as being good, they will proceed from bad to worse. It's already bad, but it's even going to get worse. Deceiving, uh, deceiving, that is, acknowledging that it will be difficult for believers in the last days, they will go from evil imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, as we've already talked about there. So back up to verse 10 then, 2 Timothy 3.10, all of that is in the context of the last times being difficult because all of this behavior becomes normative. And so now he's going to say this, 2 Timothy 3.10-12, foreseeing that it will be difficult for we as believers in the last days, 
to walk in a righteous way. Another way to say that is we'll seem to be the crazy ones. Seriously. It's going to be difficult because the world has its truth and we'll seem crazy. And see, I don't know, some of us like to please people. Not in a bad way, but I want to make sure everybody's happy. Are you happy? Can I get you some more food? Can I make sure the air can do? You see, it'll be easy to get sucked in. So in verses 10 through 12, foreseeing that it's going to be difficult for believers to live in the last days, when, we're, when our truth, the word God, his truth is going to sound like craziness and not good and harmful and hateful and traumatic and on and on it goes, that's what it's going to sound like. That's why it's going to be hard for us to say, no, this is what I believe. This is the truth of the word of God. How do we navigate them? How do we navigate these times? And this is where Paul then is beginning to give instruction for how do we overcome the challenge and the obstacles we face living in the last days when this behavior is normative. And among other things here, in verses 10 through 12, he says this. First, follow or affirm biblical teaching. In the midst of all that noise, you got to know what is true. You better know where that pole stands, right? And you got to hold fast to it. In John chapter 15, Jesus tells us to abide in the word, abide in the vine, and that's how you'll produce fruit. The word abide in the Greek literally means pitch your tent. It means camp out. Like you're going camping, pitch a tent, put the stakes down, build your, camp out in the word of God. Affirm biblical teaching. Number two, conduct yourself in a way that reflects and represents Christ well in a godly way. This, again, is how you navigate these difficult times, not only affirming biblical teaching, obeying and abiding in it, but then make it your goal to reflect and represent Jesus well. Reflect and represent Jesus well. Uh, Thirdly, pursue a higher purpose for your life, right? Because life isn't about the meaningless moment. It's about, the, uh, it's about the future. It's about leaving a legacy. It's about producing fruit, about uh, the great uh, commission. And again, representing and reflecting Jesus well. That's called purpose, significance. All of us have a need for two things in life. And really, everything boils down to these two things, security and significance. We all want to know that we're loved, and we all want our lives to count, to matter. But in the foolishness of this age, we live in a very meaningless moment. You know, I am not a dancer by any means, and if I danced, if you're familiar with Seinfeld back in the day, I danced like Elaine danced, okay? So <laughs> I won't, I'll spare you the Elaine dance this morning. And maybe I'm just older or whatever, and I'm revealing uh, a little bit of my age here, I just don't understand how people today wake up every day with the thought of what video can I shoot, how silly can I look in order to get likes and follows? I don't, I don't, I, you know, hey, maybe there's a reason and I just don't understand it yet, but I, I just want to look at the general world and say if you're living your entire life every day to think about what kind of video can I post so that people will look at me so that people will like me. See, I, I think there's a higher purpose. And I'm not against it. Post your video, right? I'm just saying, but there's a purpose. You, you need to realize that's, that's a, at the end of the day, it's a meaningless moment. 
In the last days, people will be lovers of self. Just one of the 19 things. I just don't get it. Because every day, I got, I got stuff to do. I'm waking up thinking about, I got to do this. I don't want to do that. I don't want to try. And, and all of what I'm trying to do, in some way or another, is, is rooted in my understanding of God, his love, his calling, his purpose for me. And by the way, you don't have to be a pastor. Just be a school teacher, bus driver. If you walk with Jesus, he's got purpose for your life. Amen. And understanding that, that's what you wake up every day. How do I fulfill my purpose? How do I chase that passion? Now, again, it's not 100% 24-7. We all know that. We all take a break. Gotta, but I'm saying, but in our crazy world, what is down is up. What is wrong is right. It's, it's all upside down. It's bizarro world, if you knew Seinfeld. Because for mo many, if not most, in this meaningless moment, the purpose is how many likes and follows can I get? How can I have influence? But that word has been hijacked as well because influence in the way the world uses it doesn't mean impact. Influence by the way the world uses doesn't change lives for the better. It changes lives to be more conformed to the pattern of this world and to the one, of the one that is coming. I don't know. I just don't get it. Exercise faith in spite of circumstance. So again, follow a firm biblical teaching. Conduct yourself in a way that reflects and represents Christ well. Pursue a higher purpose for your life. Ex exercise faith in spite of circumstances, right? Exercise faith in spite of circumstance. I know uh, First Lady Darina wrote a book, Juneteenth, we just celebrated, but every time we come to that month in our church, we take a moment, I gotta take a moment. I just don't, we, I, I cannot, and I say this in all sincerity, um, it always, when I reflect on it, how in the world did African Americans and even Native Americans in a different way, but in the same kind. How in the world did they persist for 400 years? And even to the oppression that remains today, how in the world can African Americans, I'm in Strong Tower Bible, and see a choir, predominantly African Americans up here, singing about their faith in God? That right there is a miracle. That right there tells me there is a God, and there's a spirit of God and a Holy Spirit that will bring us through to overcome. I see that. They have exercised faith in spite of circumstance. Jumping down to number seven, they have persevered through discouragement and disappointment. And all these ways is how you navigate difficulty as a Christ follower. Remain patient when it looks like evil is being rewarded. How in the world it seems like evil is winning. You do bad, you get rewarded. How can I remain patient and persistent and prayerful, rooted and grounded in the word of God in a world where evil is being rewarded and that which is good is not. Number six on this list, love others unconditionally as Christ loves you, no matter who they are, how they live, what they believe, what they do. Now think about that for a moment. Man, there are people in this world in, uh, you know, our community, our surrounding, and just say in my own life, they are people that believe so differently than I do. They act so differently than I do. And on and on I could go, right? They, they sometimes grate on me. They annoy me. Boy, I want to get on Twitter and say something. But at the end of the day, Christ has called me to love all people, not just some people. He's called our church 
to extend love, grace, mercy, hope, forgiveness to all people, not just some people. That's called unconditional. It's the way God loved me. And you know what? That's not easy, is it? Not in this day. And what that creates for us as people and what that creates for us as churches like Strong Tower Mosaic is it creates a tension. And here's what I want to say to you. Unity is found in tension. Unity is not erasing the tension. That's the way the world thinks, right? That's why the whites go to a white church and blacks here. That just erases tension. We don't have to deal with the Koreans. They can have their kimchi in the kitchen, you know, and it smells and nobody's going to, you know, bothered by it because we're all Koreans here, right? That's how the world wants to eliminate tension. That's how the world thinks we all get along. But the word of God tells us unity's in the tension because this is my God. Do you understand what I'm saying? Crucified with arms outstretched. And he holds the Republicans and the Democrats and the blacks and the whites and the rich and the poor. He holds all of us in tension. He holds us in tension. That's where the unity is found. I'm not saying it's easy. You know how to make it happen. Make it easy. Write a book. You'll be a millionaire, right? But that is the tension we are called to live in and to navigate and figure out a way. How do we represent Jesus well? in our words, and our actions, our deeds as individuals, collectively as a church? And how do we embrace that tension, not run from it? And when you do, you're going to make mistakes. It's not always going to be easy, be messy, but God rewards the effort. He'll take care of the results. So we have to find a way in this crazy world with people that just grade on us somehow to exercise unconditional love forgiveness in our heart, mercy, the same grace that's come to us, extend it in your mind, in your heart to others. So I don't want to, I'm not going to speak about that on Twitter. You see what I'm saying? And by the way, you know, I have many progressive friends. They go to my church uh, around the country, et cetera, and, uh, and all that. And, and, and I know, you know, for a number of years here, it's been popular, uh, this phrase, speaking truth to power, you know? Think about that phrase for a moment. What does this world value? It values speaking, but it doesn't value the results of that speaking. Think about it. Because Einstein said, for every action, there's a reaction. So if I go on social media or I'm having an argument in a cafe or I'm talking to somebody and say, that politician is this, that, this, that, this, that guy, who likes that? Who retweets that? Who puts a little heart by that on your Instagram post? All the people who, who don't like that politician just like you don't like him, right? You know what the other ones do? They defriend you. They don't see your post anymore. They ignore it. They get rid of it. And what have you actually accomplished except getting all the people who already think like you to like you <laughs> and to retweet what you said? You didn't move the ball at any, it, it, you said it backwards, because you can't even be in the same room with these people. See, I'm not so much interested in learning how to speak truth to power. I've been working for many years on learning how to bend the ear of power to the truth that I speak, which hopefully is the truth of God's word. See, that takes nuance. That takes self-restraint. You see what I'm saying? Because I want to actually move the needle. So I've got to learn how to speak truth in a way that power will receive that truth and not push it away. And that is both art and science. 
And so with all that in mind, then, we have to persevere through discouragement to suffer, suffer in one way or another because of our faith. So, moving to wrap up, how do we keep it together in what clearly is a world falling apart? Paul lands the plane here in this passage. Three things. 2 Timothy 3, 5, first, he says this, avoid these foolish people and their truth. Avoid them. Don't let them into your home. Don't let them onto your iPhone. Don't let them into your mind, your heart, your ear. Avoid them, he says. You don't need to listen and get caught up every day. Not only, the, you know, like, I don't know, TikTok or Instagram, the dancing and all that stuff uh, on reels. Um, every day, people are turning on their TV and whatever the talking heads are talking about becomes my anxiety for the day. Why do you do that? Don't listen. There's many ways to stay apprised of what is happening in our world without letting the emotions, the agendas, the narratives of others invade my personal space and get me all upset and get me thinking today about what they want me to think about, not necessarily what God wants me to think about. And Paul says avoid it. Avoid that. Number two, 2 Timothy 3.10. 3, uh, by the way, I can't let their truth, I just wrote this down, so I want to say it. Can't let their truth get in my head. Avoid it. Don't let them into your household, your feed, your mind. Uh, be freed of their foolishness. Just let it go and follow the owner's manual. Number two, 2 Timothy 3.10. Not only avoid these foolish people and their truth, but number two, seek out and follow sound biblical teachers and teaching, 2 Timothy 3.10. And boy, do you have it here with Pastor Chris and Darina. You're doing a good thing by seeking out and following sound biblical teaching. And of course, they, there's others, right? But you want to find your way, starting in your own church and those you gather around, the people you're studying the word of God with and others. But who, instead of listening to the noise and the craziness out there, surround yourself with truth tellers, people who are not... Uh, about getting themselves liked and all that. But they just want to share the word of God. They want your life to be better. They want to help you with your problems from this word, not from their own. From the truth of God, not necessarily their own. So we need to seek out. So one is avoid, the other is seek out. You see what I'm saying? Avoid the foolishness, seek out sound biblical teachers and teaching. And then finally, 2 Timothy 3, verse 14, uh, Paul writes, continue. Uh, that is, in the Greek, to remain steadfast, convinced of, and faithful in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you've learned them, and that from childhood, in Timothy's case, you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is Christ Jesus. Paul, or I'm sorry, Timothy, we would say today was biracial, right? His father was Greek, his mother was a Jewish woman. And clearly, from the time he was little, his mother, as a Jewish woman, passed on to him faith. And Paul is saying, remain steadfast in the truth you were taught from a young age by a mother who loved you and shot it straight with you, right out of God's word. Continue in that truth and don't get messed up in the truth that is ever-evolving, not comprehensible, and not sustainable. By the way, when you read... Uh, when you stay fixed in those sacred writings, he says, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation, uh, don't just think about salvation in terms of eternal life, but being saved from this foolishness, being saved from the anxiety, instead finding peace and prosperity in your life, 
not destruction and death. There's many ways to be saved, not just eternally, but in here, to embrace wisdom so you'll be saved, so you'll navigate those difficult days and not get swept away by them in the last times. Well, with all that in mind, uh, a, few, a couple of months ago now, uh, we've all, uh, I'm sure, heard of or read, saw the reports of the Titan submersible explosion. You see that on the journey down to uh, the Titanic and that Titanic and that whole thing continues to claim lives. And uh, that was Ocean Gate was the company. They founded the, uh, or they built this one man, Stockton Rush. He built this submersible they named the Titan. And, you know, without getting all the specifics, I guess the alloy, the metal around it imploded. It wasn't strong enough. It wasn't tested, what have you. Take a look at this picture. You can see a picture of it. And then, of course, these crews that were trying to rescue or find the divers. But I was struck around the time I was reflecting on Timothy, 2 Timothy, uh, our church was going through a series on it, by a quote post-death that, w- that was attributed to Stockton Rush, the main guy, the guy who built the, the ship and who took those people down, and he, in fact, locked his life. Look what he said. This is all before that. You know, at some point, safety just is pure waste. I think I can do this just as safely by breaking the rules. No, you can't. I'm here to tell you, no, you can't. You cannot break the rules and expect to live. You cannot move away from the creator, the owner of life, who gave you an instruction manual that says, don't push these three buttons in sequence or you'll mess up your whole life. You move away from those, you die. You don't live. The Stockton Rush had this mentality. Arrogance. Clearly, that's an arrogant statement. That that is an arrogant statement. Again, kind of like the liar. I'm not going to say he's an arrogant man. I'm just saying that was an arrogant statement, and it's one of the 19 things that the apostle said will be circulating as normative in our life and time. It's going to be difficult. It already is difficult to live in the tension and navigate what are clearly the last days prior to the return of Christ. By the way, a day is like a thousand years to the Lord. That last day could be a thousand years from now. It could be 500 years. It could be 50 years. It could be five. Who knows? The Bible continually tells us to be ready, not to know the day or the hour, just be ready. And the way we're ready is by living on point with Jesus, rooted and grounded in scripture, navigating difficult times in these last days by avoiding foolish people and their truth, by seeking out and following sound biblical teaching and teachers, and lastly, by remaining steadfast and continuing in that timeless truth of God's word that through the centuries, thousands and thousands of years, has proven itself over and over to be accurate and sustainable, that gives us peace and prosperity, length of days, faithfulness, goodness, truth, and righteousness in our lives to his glory. Amen. Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for Paul's instruction to Timothy that is so relevant some 2,000 years ago for us today. And I pray that we will take heart from these words. We will look at this world to the way you see it. Uh, Eyes of love, yes, but also eyes of judgment that says the truth of this world is not your truth. And give us ways to navigate to stand firm in the truth and to, in doing so, to be able to cut through the noise by living or outliving the world, giving a compelling, incredible reason for others to come out of the darkness into the light so they too will know you as we do. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless all of you. Thanks for having me.